In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is a very distinctive apostle. He did not follow the Lord Jesus for a peregrinage of two or three years, back and forth along the highways and byways, linking Galilee with Judea. He never even met the Lord face to face until after the Lord was dead, buried, resurrected, and risen. There on the road to Damascus, he did not engage the master in discourse day after day, learning by experience, trial and error like Peter, from whom we've heard, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter spent all this time with the Lord. And though he may be the rock, he is the stumbling stone as well as the cornerstone upon which the foundation of the church is set. But when we say the apostle, invariably we mean Paul. Unworthy to be called an apostle, he says. An apostle is one who's sent out to take the word where it must go, to let the word do its work of breaking hearts and building faith in those who are to hear it, those to whom God grants to see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Turn and see things from God's point of view. Well, that's the work of an apostle, to bring those to whom he or she is sent, there are female apostles, that the word which will set the heart free. Paul and Peter and Isaiah, from whom we heard first, Isaiah is not an apostle, but almost an apostle. He shares the vocation of the apostles, if you like, in getting a prophet's reward, as they do. In his case, being stuck in a log and sawn in two by Manasseh. Peter and Paul are apparently crucified together. So that's not the only vocation they share. And the call which wakes them up, shapes them up, and ships them out to wherever they are called, they also called. An apostle has then a prophetic call. And again, the call is the word for which we use vocation. Today's topic is vocational worthiness or vocational holiness, as Luther puts it. And this is to make clear that not just prophets and priests and holy women and men are called, but everyone is called without exception. Everyone has a call. And as Luther says, the priest at the altar has no higher a call than the public executioner. There are no higher calls. All calls are equal, as long as they are heard and responded to and lived out to the holiness and glory of God. Everyone, as I said, has a call, a vocation, and they receive this vocation, as Paul did, direct from the Lord, immediate, intimate, personal, and persistent. And the Lord, the Holy Spirit, will hammer at our hearts and our heads and our ears until the call is heard and the heart is changed and those who are called spring into action. 
but always, always first comes this question of holiness, of worthiness. Woe is me, for I am lost, I am destroyed, he says, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There are always these qualifications, if you like, when we seek sometimes to be disqualified, to back off. If all the calls ended, as they do for Isaiah and Peter and Paul, we might understand our protestations of unworthiness. But there's something deeper that persists until that over unworthiness is dealt with and the call can be heard and lived out. Now, unworthiness is an unpopular virtue in today's world. And I try to tell students especially whose story I am privileged to share that it's all right to feel unworthy. Conscientiousness is the surest indicator of future success, as the psychologists say. And on the other hand, a sense of confident entitlement is surest sign of a fall or worse. We always think of the saints, however, as well on their way to complete sanctification when the Lord interrupts them and gives them their marching orders, <clears throat> ready to jump in and feeling fully fit. But sanctity is the kind of thing that the closer you get, the further away it seems to be. The closer we actually are to God in his holiness, the further away we are guaranteed to feel. Unworthiness then. But as we read the texts, and look at how these great heroes of the faith uh, never disappoint us, at least ultimately, we who know the final outcome tend to think then of worthiness as something you have. Like the ontological change which certain dioceses talk about. It's something that's done to you and your whole being, your whole substance has transformed. Maybe it's done by your own persistent effort, but you reach a certain point and you really up for any task, and it's because you have it or you don't. This word, hikanos, connotes not moral status, however, but performative preparedness. It's not what you are, it's what you are to do. Adequacy, sufficiency, worthiness is being good enough. It means not being good, but being up to it, having the qualifications to deliver the goods. And if it is a question of possessing some attribute, of having some moral virtue, it's having that which it takes to get the job done. That something, however, as Paul goes on to say, has more to do with wanting and not so much with having, wanting what you don't have. And if wanting not having is what qualifies you, then worthiness is measured by how badly you want it, which is to do the thing for which you're qualified. Paul gives us a little bit of his journey from unworthiness to serving. He talks about life before Christ and life after. Before he heard the call then on the twist of that Damascus road, on which he was on his way to do what he did best, that is, round up, imprison, and oversee the torture and execution of Christians, Paul was confronted by the risen Lord, who said one thing. 
And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul literally falls to the ground from a horse, as some paintings depicted. What is it that stops him in his tracks? And what is it that he is doing as he goes about this business of persecution? The word here, dioko, carries the connotations of the utmost intensity. This is no parlor persecution for the worried well. This is active pursuit, pressing forward to the goal, as Paul says, using exactly the same word in Philippians fighting the good fight or running the race so as to win the prize, chasing down Christians with the prosecutorial zeal of a Robert Mueller, we would like to think, but probably of a Ray Cohn and a Senator McCarthy who saw a communist under every bed and behind every tree and cared little about whose lives were destroyed in the pursuit. This is zeal. This is the zeal of an ideologue who is untroubled by compassion, untroubled by any considerations other than the law, and that it shall be applied ruthlessly and without exception. This sense of pursuit, then, is not just a psychological one that we have when we sense that we are being persecuted, that vague sense of oppression that sometimes encumbers us. Oppression is real enough, I may say, but it tends to numb its victims rather than sharpen them. And its victims are the victims and the victimizers alike. It numbs them to the real that is possible. No, this is the zeal of Al-Qaeda, if you like, or any of the individuals or groups in our world who will take great pains to settle real or imagined scores and will not rest until their victims, usually innocent victims, have been relentlessly tracked down and hacked down or they themselves have been stopped in their tracks, just as Saul was. This is just what Paul is coming from then, and he makes a 180-degree turn. Persecution, which means to pursue with every fiber of your being, to want this thing more than life itself, and not to rest until you have satisfied everything that this call is laying on your life. Pursuit. Now, why this? Because it is the same pursuit that is the pursuit of righteousness, of the will of God that qualifies and makes the prophet worthy of his or her call. Not how good do you have to be, but how badly do you have to want the good that you will have to do. The prophets of today call us to just that zeal and that sense of adequacy which only comes when we are drawn by the most powerful motivation there is. The work of the Holy Spirit, or as we are told, the grace of God, working in the souls, the love of God, working on those who cry out for their voices to be heard and their gifts to be put to use for the world and for the kingdom. It's significant, I think, in the gospel passage that we see what it is that makes Peter cry out that he's unworthy? What is it that makes those who are called draw back? What is it that weighs on them, gives them a sense of inertia, drags them down? 
the gospel passage, it's the so-called miraculous draft of fishes. Abundance, if you like, or prosperity. The fish those guys hauled in would put a big spike in the sales uh, charts of any respectable organization. They'd boost your price of your shares. They would be something after which you would go home with a tremendous sense of being in the right place at the last time. It's the last place that you expect the Lord Jesus to come and say, good, now these are your orders. Drop everything. Give up everything and follow me. You'll notice this pattern through scripture, this pattern, right from the beginning, from Abraham right to the end. You want to follow me? Good. You give me everything you have. This is not adding prosperity to prosperity, success to success. You take all your security, your safety, and your success, and you throw it on the ground. And then the Lord will give you what you need to do his will. That's the pattern. And they obey. They literally go from being the best fishermen on the Sea of Galilee to leaving it all behind and following him. Those who seek to see their God-given vocation realized, made real in the world, in the work of making the world real, the world that God really means to realize, have to go through this transition. This is what purifies us. Abandoning any security or structure we have in our lives and turning our lives over to the God who will give us what we need to do what we have to do. We see again and again that God honors those who will make that surrender, that giving up to him, who will lift empty hands to him to receive what they are to receive, which is the power to do what they have to do to empower others. Because the gifts you receive are not for yourself either at the end of the day. They're to help you go and raise up those who are too downtrodden, downcast, and really consumed, browbeaten down with a sense of unworthiness, ever to believe they have anything to offer anyone else. Yet God gives his gifts everywhere to everyone who is drawn into his kingdom. It's so often the work of the world to suppress those gifts. And if you read through scripture, you'll see how quickly the order of creation is defaced and retired, and how much of the work of scripture, the patriarchy especially, is what we would call damage control, triage, that is God's way of grappling with the disaster and the calamity that works its way through the progress of the people of God. It is not a model for the church of this world or the world of this world, but a record of God's grace in dealing with people who are flailing on the ground. We don't get to Mayo in the neurological operating room until we get to Jesus. But when we go through the Old Testament, we go through a lot of very rough measures to bring people through. These are not meant to be our models. Our prayer, then, is that our thudding hearts and stopped-up ears, this is Isaiah talking about his audience, our eyelids crusted shut, 
will be retuned and returned to their original vitality. Their breathless pursuit of the kingdom of God and his righteousness seek ye first the kingdom of God. That this is the work as well of women as of men is something that concerns me very much right now. As one who, as I have shared, was initially totally accepting of the notion of women being ordained to whatever place they had in the church, serving at the altar, being a bishop, I went through a period in which I withdrew from that point of view. It cost me nothing to settle back into my own privileges as a white male and see what God might do for the women that he was calling. And yet as one works through scripture, you don't just need the radical attitude of Jesus to women, but as you follow the path of the disciples and prophets that Jesus raised up, you will see in the female followers to whom scripture attests, when we can scrape away enough of the exegetical crust with which these centuries have obscured the radical witness of these texts, and may I say the most recent centuries and our evangelical witness are the most pernicious, the period in which we are most willing to tear texts away from contexts as a pretext for making them mean whatever they want, one verse at a time, and it usually shores up our very comfortable way of living quite nicely. Amazing how the dovetail works there. I repent, then, for those women who I have undercut in the years that have allowed me to step back from supporting God's claim on their lives, God's claim on their lives to serve at this altar or seek the highest place that the church will give them. And I salute those who are doing this redemptive work. And we look forward to sharing the work of their heads, hearts, and hands in the coming week as we are given opportunity to take place in the conference that Wheaton College is hosting. Please look as you leave at the posters that are there. Those women have taught me more about faith than we'll leave it there. <laughs> May zeal for the kingdom continue to consume them. And may our rediscovery of the qualifications with which they have always been endowed by God allow them to begin to take their rightful place in the world and even please God in the church. God knows we need them now more than ever. Amen. <laughs>